Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I do think that if he had been a hard man, but fair, the world would be a different place now. You wouldn't have had the Iraq-Iran war. You wouldn't have had this uprising. But all of the indecisions that he ever made actually were butterfly effects for what happened around the world in different places. Welcome to the Warrior You podcast, proudly presented by Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. The Warrior You podcast delves deep into the topics of leadership, resilience and human optimization. Our mission statement is simple. You're the mission. A massive shout out to our main sponsor, gym equipment specialist, Aussie Strength. A proud Australian veteran-owned business who have kitted out home garage gyms and huge fitness centres all over Australia and globally. During this series, Trent and Bram will be pulling apart leadership styles through history and attributing them with a score for different areas of leadership. By doing this, they hope to find skills and attributes that modern leaders may or may not want to emulate. This week on the Warrior You podcast, they dissect Muhammad Reza Pahlavi. Due to his status as Allah Shah, that being the king of Iran, he is often known simply as the Shah. He was born on the 26th of October 1919 in Tehran. The Shah started as a soldier and rose to command the Persian Cossack Brigade and was a colonel by the commencement of World War I. His rule started in 1941 until his overthrow in the Iranian Revolution on the 11th of February 1979. Throughout his reign, he aimed to achieve two broad goals, consolidate his personal power and westernise Iran. Analyzing the last Shah of Iran as a leader with Trent of Brand. It's another one of our leadership series. This one's around another leader, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, have I said that right? Yeah, I think you have. I think you have. The last Shah of Iran. It sounds like a Hollywood blockbuster, the last Shah of Iran. So this guy is really, really interesting and a dichotomy of a whole heap of values. Born 26th of October 2019 in Tehran. He was the son of Reza Khan Pahlavi, who was coincidentally an Iranian general, who then became the Shah of Iran upon the 1921 Iranian coup. Reza Khan, so Muhammad Khan's dad, he led through what would be described as an authoritarian regime that centralized all of the power of Iran around his family. And Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, so Khan's son, and the subject of our podcast today, he was terrified of his father because he was such a strict disciplinarian. And I've got in my notes here that his dad actually avoided any engagement in his life for fear that it might make him a homosexual. Wow. Yeah, it's it's written in a number of sources as well, so it's widely believed to be true. 
way to wreck your son by not showing him what good masculinity looks like, I guess. So because of that, he grew up as nervous, fearful, and lacking in self-confidence, which plays a great part in really his whole life, as we will show. And he detested his father. Yeah, he did up to up to a point. It wasn't until later on in life and just prior to Razor's death that they actually started to form a bit of a bond. So it was largely when Muhammad Pahlavi started to come into his own and become successful as a man. But, you know, Razor started his career as a soldier and then rose to command the Persian uh, Cossack Brigade. Yeah. So to give you some context, he was a colonel by the commencement of World War One. Mm. It's really important not to underestimate the negative influences that Razor had on his son. You know, he was a six foot eight mountain of a man who, you know, this guy to impose discipline on his troops, he literally used to kick them in the groin, <laughs> just, just full on ass- uh, assault mm. his soldiers and officers. And, and as you said, he took power in a coup d'etat. He was a fan of Ataturk and, and really did start to set Iran on the path towards modernization but he did it quite brutally and was largely a despot, essentially overlooked any form of modernisation of the peasantry so that agricultural class outside of the cities, you know, and and essentially that it set Muhammad Pahlavi on this this course. And as we'll show, it set Iran on a course to Mm. to they haven't even escaped to today, as we will discuss. Destruction. Have you ever met a Persian, a a real Persian? One. Mm. I met a few in... In Dubai and, you know, the women, for instance, when they're from Persian descent and uh, an unwatered down lineage, they're just incredible. They look completely different than anything mm. you've seen in the Middle East. And the men, as you say, the you know, when you when you meet the proud Iranian men, they're like, they're absolute monsters. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe I'm generalizing, but as a rule, that was definitely what I saw. So he was raised by his mother mostly which is really interesting to me because i saw a lot of that in the uae as well where the the mothers Mm -hmm. raise the sons and the fathers are vacant she was quite overprotective and and very controlling probably bullied herself by men therefore bullied the son again a generalization but something that i've i have noticed does occur so the cycle continues you know you, you, you bully these boys these boys grow up they bully the women the women bully the boys the boys grow up they bully the women it sort of continues in the cyclic pattern Interestingly, do you know he was a twin? Uh, so a twin sister? No. And his, yeah, his twin sister was one of his closest confidants and closest advisors. Yeah, that, yeah was, right. that was quite interesting. Mm. I didn't even have that in my notes, so I didn't even discover that. So sent by his dad when he was 11 to Switzerland. That, there he got a formal education, bullied a fair bit because he was Iranian and he did it to himself, though, as well. So when he first got to Switzerland, he used to try and make the kids in in the university stand fast as he walked past. You know, <laughs> don't don't you know, don't you know, I'm a prince. He literally got beaten up almost on his first day, and he quite quickly worked out that nobody cared. Yeah, right. And he would be known during during schooling as a francophile. So that's someone who who just loves. The French loves mm. the history of the place. And so he really deeply immersed himself in understanding French culture and the language. He went to Paris to finish his studies. Ah, oh, there you go. Yeah, and so his upbringing has been often cited as the main reasons yeah. for his personality. So he's quite shy, elusive, aloof, indecisive, very fickle, no real permanent values that he could you could pin anything on. Loved the idea of the West and their customs 
and he would, you know, rule with authority, confidence, and as you say, he would exude wealth. And I, I know people like this, and I mean, I mean, I know very, very rich people, billionaires like this. Anyway, he was married to Princess Fuazia of Egypt. Fuazia. Yeah, Fuazia. Uh, nineteen thirty-seven. They had a daughter in nineteen forty. He's actually married three times. Really. He's married three times, but that first marriage was absolutely a disaster. And of course, he was only provided with a daughter and he knew right off the bat that he needed a male heir. That was never going to work. And in fact, he actually said of his relationship with Fawzia that that the one bright moment in that relationship was the birth of his daughter. Yeah. You know, he he ended up being married a second time, but she was unable, or they were unable to conceive. Mm. He ended up divorcing her, but, but, you know, right up until the end, he maintained contact with her. Wow. And then married a third time and ended up with an heir. So, um, Right. Well, before mm. that, did you know that in World War Two, the UK and the Soviets invaded Iran? To secure the oil fields. Yeah. The and so that was called yeah. Operation Countenance. And because of Operation Countenance, and I mean, it, we're talking 200,000 soldiers, mm-hmm. 1,000 T whatever they were, tanks. T-34s. Yeah, like the best tanks yeah. they had, you know, a thousand of them against 50 Persian tanks, which were the best that, that money could buy at the time but didn't last long. The Australian Navy were involved. In fact, yep. the HMAS Yarra, which is an Australian hero, I might add, the HMAS Yarra, which was a Grimsby-class sloop, so it, it was a really sleek-looking modern ship, she came into port at four o'clock in the in the morning after the Knimbla, that's a name that a lot of old Navy guys would be like, yeah, the Knimbla. The Knimbla dropped off two battalions of troops, a surprise attack in a port, not an SF-type mission, just two battalions mm. of troops straight off the ship into the port. Yeah, and the Yarra came in and sunk the, the best Iranian battleship that they had while it was still docked. Came straight in there, all guns blazing. And I might That's add, impressive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Look, I might add that the Yarra was lost a year later when Japanese um, cruisers Otago, Takoa, and Maya, accompanied by four destroyers, attacked an Australian-American convoy that was departing somewhere around Singapore. And yeah, the, right. the Yarra put a smoke screen down. The captain ordered the rest of the ships to disperse, and the Yarra turned around and went straight back into them. Yeah. You don't know that story, do you? Wow. Yeah, and we're talking a sloop went back and started attacking three cruisers. I don't know. You know, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's huge, mate. Quinton Bryce announced a unit citation for gallantry, retroactively awarded to the ship's company. There was 13 survivors and then only nine lasted in the water to be picked up five days later by a submarine. I mean, it it is an amazing story. We should do a whole podcast on that. That's that's impressive. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. pretty sure the Yarra was part of a, a British task force in the Straits of Hormuz as part of that that attack. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, that's a bit of background on Muhammad Pahlavi. As you can see, you know, he he grew up in a very weird family situation. His dad was a monster of a man, authoritarian, ruled with an iron fist. Probably a almost a historical reference back to the the Persia of old, and he was then the next generation that grew up in a modern world. Yeah, he was sort of straddling the, the two. Mm. Alrighty. Inspiration, motivation, score. I gave him four out of ten. 
you know, there was a time there where it was a 10 out of 10, if you think about it, but it slowly started to dwindle down. There's three distinct periods yeah. in, in, in his leadership. So there's the early start to his career when he succeeded his father. Which is during and then post-World during War II. During World yeah, that, that's yeah. right. And he was a, a, literally a playboy that, that didn't really have any skill set at all. And it took him some time to get up to speed. And yeah. then he had that sort of modernisation period following the White Revolution. And then, then there was the, the rapid right. decline. You know, he was inspired by the legacy of the ancient Persian shahs. You know, we're talking Christ sort of period onwards. He was convinced he was born to reform Iran and revitalise mm. its past glory. He thought he was a chosen one, I, th- I think. Yeah. He, he used that image of being young, confident, progressive to gain public support. He tried to create a vision to bring political stability and reform to Iran, which is pretty easy to do after you've just been invaded by 200,000 Soviets. <laughs> you know, it's pretty easy to say, hey, sure. hey, we're here. You know, we, we've dodged a bullet here. We're not speaking Russian or British. And he, he tried to bring that sort of stability after the war. What he did is he used vibrant celebrations, that rich Iranian culture and history, the dancing, the food, all of their, their historical reference points to try and bring his country together as one and to have a shared culture. Yeah, I, I think it was also probably a little more personal. I don't think it was probably as altruistic as that. Mm. Um, that's my that's my impression as well because, like you said, he, he thought he was the chosen one. He thought he was like the Shahs of old. For example, at the height of his, his reign, he, he threw the most lavish uh, party of all times ever in history on the two and a half thousand year celebration of the Persian monarchy, which sort of was inspired by the Archimedic Empire and Cyrus the Great. And that was done in 1971. So about uh, you know eight or nine years before his fall. And at that time, I, th- I think I saw a figure, it was something like $100 million US in cost. There was six and a half thousand Iranian army soldiers essentially dressed up in every period of costume and battle order from you know, the Archimedic Empire right through to the current day. Wow. And and the purpose of it, not only to reinforce his own position, but at that time it was to show the imams that the monarchy is actually older than Islam. Wow. So so that was quite a statement that he was making was, mm. and obviously quite a dangerous one. And at that point, you know, the Iranian military was the fifth largest in the world. Yeah, that, it, it would be safe to say, wouldn't it, Trent, that he really benefited from a, an economic oil boom post-World War II and that Iran was raking in the cash. And so he was able to, as we, as we will probably show as we go through this, he was able to mm-hmm. use that wealth and that money to really reinforce his position. But, I mean, $100 million for a party in 1971... <laughs> I mean that's equivalent of billions now, really. Yeah, well, well and truly, you yeah. know, and and like you said, he 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 raked in the money just by essentially throwing out the agreement with the British for the Anglo-Persian oil company agreement. It's also safe to say that people's standard of living, as as it was around the world, was getting better mm. in the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, and for the aristocracy and the the middle class in Iran. They were all for him because they were like, "Hey, this is amazing! You know, we're just we're we're getting more money, we're having more nicer things, more technology in but the cities, in the cities, in the cities. right?" Because it backfired yep. because yeah, most of his autocratic rule only brought wealth to himself and those aristocrats and people in the you know in the cities. 
not nowhere else. They didn't reform out into the countryside or out into the Bedouin sort of people living in in the mountain. Yeah, because I think it didn't affect him, and he didn't see the the whole vision. Mm. He was able to really capitalize on being timid and being weak, and use that to show that perhaps he was empath. I think he tried to show it as being empathetic, but actually he was just weak, and it it played into the hands of his political mm. rivals because pretty much whoever had his ear at the time, he would make the decision in their favour. Yeah. I've listened to and I've watched a number of, you know, the beauty of this being a modern study is there's, you know, a number of sort of 60 minutes type uh, documentaries and mm. uh, the Fifth Estate uh, interview as well mm. in the 70s from CBC was really informative as well. I think there was a fair degree of timidity involved in his personality. He took a lot of his cues from a close personal friend that he met in Paris when he was going through his education. And he largely stayed with him in the Marble Palace for his entire career. And he really did struggle with making decisions. And I think that sort of comes out in the rest of our discussion. But mm. he he was scared in a crisis, I think. So yeah. there was timidity involved. Mm. Yeah. And, and again, after the war, if you can seem to be empathetic, mm. then people are going to jump on that. And then, and then if they get money as well. He established the SAVAC secret police, and he also made the army swear loyalty to him personally, then exiled and imprisoned pretty much anyone or cracked down on, on anyone who protested his reign or any organisations. And having said that, he would often then go and pardon those same groups <laughs> weeks later, creating a really confusing landscape. Yeah, and I think that's a, a symptom of his entire leadership story as well. Just prior to the Iranian revolution you know, being completed, he actually refused to crack down on the people. There had been a couple of flashes. Army had opened fire on some crowds, killed a number of people and those sorts of things, but he refused to essentially crush the people. And and this was despite uh, advice from the US president, Jimmy Carter at the time, who saw Muhammad Pahlavi as the preferred option in power you know, yeah. from a from an oil perspective. And basically, Jimmy Carter and his team provided some ambiguous advice, which was essentially go really strong on uh, controlling this. But what we want you to do is give ground a little bit as well, give concessions and concede some policies to, uh, to the opposition, which mm. obviously that part of that was communism. And that was a big, that was a big issue. And that's why Jimmy Carter was, you know, seeking... Uh, seeking him to stay in power. But this essentially ambiguous advice if just you, led to complete confusion. If you've been invaded by the Anglo-Russian force and had 200,000-odd Russians in your country for any period of time, chances mm. are that their secret police have left people behind that have infiltrated yeah. your population. And guess what happens? You have the Tudors. Yeah, and a number of prime ministers were you know, connected with the Tudors and, and yeah. communists. Yeah, and the Tudors were the Communist Party, not Communist mm. Party. Yeah, well, they were. They were a, a group, a communist Communist group influence. Within, yeah. within Iran that were agitating to look at communism as, a, as an opportunity, yeah, to the government they had of the day. Yeah, interesting. He, he looked to appease all these groups, even the, the Tudors. Like, he even had them in part of the decision-making elite. Mm-hmm. 
And then he slowly but surely, and this isn't this really is a story of trying to be everything to everyone, isn't it? I think. Yep. I mean, and just, being indecisive and yeah. flip flopping on a range of different issues. That is the that is the critical or one of the probably three critical areas in his leadership when we're looking at this with a leadership lens. Mm. You know, he he had a vision, but he wasn't able to select and maintain the aim and yeah. he can see ground all over the place. If it wasn't clear and consistent, it really undermined his power. Yeah. He was highly effective at using economic growth to demonstrate the benefits of his leadership, but he wasn't able to reinforce the benefits through building a a strong base of people who agreed with him. So ultimately what happened his use of coercion, his displays of wealth, his effort to blame Iran's problems on foreign plots, the internal agitation for communism, all of the groups that he had made illegal and then and then had given them pardon, they just all turned against him. Mm. <laughs> all right, so some pros. He was able to use his weakness, you know, and his timidity as a strength. He he maintained, he really did maintain public support for 30 years. You know, it only yeah. faded in the 70s, in the, in the, late, in the mid-70s, but it faded mm. fast. He, can, he consistently satisfied all the groups in his reign until, mm. he, until he didn't. He didn't really overly rely on, on force. He did genuinely have popular support and respect. But again, that's probably because of the empathetic nature that he had and also because of the wealth that was being poured into the country. He was he was also seen as quite a, I guess, an enlightened and westernised leader within his own country because he had, had done a significant amount of study internationally but he also resented he also resented the western influence a lot and that led him to you know nationalizing the oil fields but that's huge isn't it too that's like that can't be that's that's a whole nother story in itself and Mm. the the oil story around iran is as big as this whole period in itself but the savak did use torture and coercion Mm. and and but he denied it publicly so Mm. even though he was heavily involved Publicly, he would state that he wasn't and that he was offended when people asked him whether he was aware of torture. You know, he had about 3,500 political prisoners. They really... Yeah, you're right. It's mm. still a bit, of a, it's a bit of a mess. And in the early 70s, his economic might, he used that against the UK and the US and he got the other Arab states alongside. He allowed prices up through OPEC. Well, that's right, and they mm. and suddenly they were getting the money for the oil and not not a third party. Then Iran actually started loaning millions and millions of you know U.S. dollars to Western countries. Mm. So at one point, only a couple of decades before, they were on the receiving end of a really they're a really crappy economic deal, and now they're bailing out Western Europe out of financial crises. Mm. It's dramatic turnaround, and he wasn't beyond reminding his people that now that was the the position he'd got his country to. Yeah, no, and so really, so his his pros are all underlined mm. by yep. the economic flow yep. of wealth coming into the country. So that's why he was able to to be weak. That's why he was able to 
do what he did and be not counted for it along the coercion lines because the money was flowing in and people were turning a blind eye to all the other social his weaknesses. Yeah. And, and he, as we've said, he struggled during crises, mm. but when things were going well, he could, I, I think, effectively surf along. But he did go a long way towards commencing the modernisation programs, mm. the social and economic and those sorts of things. You said before that one of the cons, we'll get onto the cons now, you know, was that he flip-flopped on ideas and mm. decision-making. I think that's 100% right. He was a visionary but couldn't see it through. Absolutely. Mm. And then his, his hedging of support amongst various groups, that created a weak power base, which meant that the weakness that he showed actually united all of those yep. groups together. They had a common – and he's, here it is for you. He's a young – he's a top-tip mm-hmm. young players – if you want to um, be overthrown, get all the disparate groups to unite with one vision, which is you gone. Well played. Yeah, well, he he exiled Ayatollah Khomeini to, to Iraq. You know, I mean, look at that. You know, I, I know, right there was was that not the decision that you know ultimately was the nail in the coffin? Well, not because... just that; it set it set world history. He, if he'd executed him, the world would be a different place. I mean, I which, hate to say that. It... But... Yeah, 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 but which his supporters, his his true supporters said, you've got to execute this guy. And then instead, what he did was, from Iraq, Ayatollah Khomeini started the cassette tape revolution. Right. And that's essentially where Ayatollah Khomeini, every single day, he would essentially make, make a sermon and it was and literally distributed throughout the mosques and copied in the mosque offices. Jesus and Christ. Then ev- yeah, and then every time, it was the, uh, every time it's the ISIS playbook in 1979. 100%. He's absolutely right, you know, and we've seen exactly the same playbook across, you know, across Facebook and those sorts of things in Egypt and, yeah. and you know, Syria, this was, Syria, it, ISIS, you know, exactly. Afghanistan. And so, and, and so Ayatollah Khomeini did it through literally cassette tapes every single day, hundreds of thousands of them. Wow. And so like a virus, they one cassette comes yep. out, it goes to a yep. mosque, they make 100 cassettes, goes to 100 mosques, they make 1,000 cassettes. Before you know it, everyone's listening to the Ayatollah, yeah. rise up, rise up. Exactly. I think he actually phoned in his, his sermons in, into Iran and they just copied it on a, on a tape recorder. And it's very, uh, very interesting. You want to talk about a volatile, uncertain, complex, complex and uh, yeah. ambiguous landscape. And that's before we have Instagram, before we have Facebook, before we have Twitter. So it's not instantaneous. Twitter. Very interesting. Yeah, that's just insane to me. He, he demonstrated inflexibility. His wealth and military crackdowns on protests saw people perceive him as a tyrant and they used that against him. Yeah. All of his methods of inspiring a divided power base to support him, they became unpopular. Yeah, especially like... All the imams turned on him after that party. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because he, he had the goal to say, my family 
predates mm. Islam. And that was, yep. that for me was the start. That was the crack, that $100 million yep. bash. And at his height as well, and this is where you you may have heard of the phrase the Shah of Shahs, mm. the, king, the King of Kings. Now, you know, interestingly, the concept, the King of Kings, is, is what uh, much of Islam refers to Muhammad as. Right. And, and so there was this anti-Shah concept going around at the moment because it was challenging the authority of the religious leaders at the time. Mm. But in reality... Persian kings, great Persian kings, had called themselves the king of kings prior to Islam. Mm. So he was harking back, as he tended to do, harking back to the pre-Islam periods and Cyrus the Great, who was the start of the monarchy. But you, you um, don't, you know, you can't do that. You, you can't. Right. You have to right. be in tune with where the, the society and the culture is now. And if, if Correct. attacking Islam, you know, that was always going to bring him undone. But, but it was understated. He never said it. There were, no, but just referring to yourself as correct. something as something as the challenge as yeah. as better than yeah. Or, or yep, to use that term, the King of Kings, which is a, a beautiful sentence in itself. But to use mm. that sentence, which was being used to describe the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, if you are actually describing yourself as that, mm. you know, you've got some troubles coming. And this is the interesting sort of, I guess, if you compare it to. Ataturk, he didn't actively confront Islam in his country. He empowered them to support him. Through trusted advisors. So right. his, his most senior general was a staunch religious advocate and allowed Ataturk's vision to be translated into a meaningful, worthwhile message mm. that would support the religious leaders. That was the difference. That was the difference. Yeah, you, you almost would be forgiven for thinking that the world would be a much nicer place if Ataturk and Pahlavi had have spent more time together. Interestingly, his dad, Reza, was an Ataturk fan. Yeah. And the whole and the whole concept of that modernization largely was initiated from Ataturk's, you know, rapid change to, mm. to Turkey. Providing purpose and direction. I gave him five out of ten for that. Providing purpose and direction, which again is one of the foundational elements to leadership. The Shah aimed throughout his reign to achieve really two broad things. Consolidate his own personal power and his family's position and to westernise Iran. Yep. In 1946, he sent the army to defeat separatist leaders in Persian Azerbaijan. Uh, we're seeing that kick off again at the moment in 2020, by the way. I, I think um, Reza actually came from Azerbaijan. Is that right? I've been there. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. <laughs> and it's and and if you look at Azerbaijan, it is you know it is a east meets west style place. You know, for sure. There was an assassination attempt on the Shah in 1949, blamed on the Communist Party of Iran. So the the Tudors. Couple of attempts actually. Really? Did you know? That? I did not. There were also a number of plots, but mm. the first one was a lone gunman who was shot down by security forces and, and killed outright. And the second one was a group that was essentially the attempt was foiled. Later on and after his reign, I think it became common knowledge that Khrushchev actually mm. launched multiple assassination attempts against the Shah. Right, because he could undermine the country and communism mm. Mm. flourishes. For sure. He must have been terrified after seeing you know, a mountain of a man of his dad be disposed by the Brits and the Russians in the 40s. 
you know, he saw that happen. So he, he must have always been looking over his shoulder. Well, he was put in as a bit of a figurehead as well. I mean, it was the it was the invading powers that essentially put yeah. Muhammad in power because he was weak and, and young and a playboy. Yeah, right. Easily manipulated. Yeah, and I mean, he had the, the secret police and army crack down on strikes and protests, even mm. though he, without his knowledge, I don't know. What do you think? He publicly stated that he didn't know of of torture and and those you know mm. disappearances and those sorts of things but he was actively involved in it he ended up not having total control yeah. over his apparatus yeah. so providing purpose and direction he was able to consolidate power popular messaging he was progressive mm. the conservative mm. irans were were in his pocket for the most part until 71 he projected himself as a savior and a protector and revitalizing after and you got to remember a lot of people 10 20 years older than him had seen the the russians and the british roll in in five days and invade their country and just steamroll the place and the australian cruiser come in and sink their battleship but you know let's roll on to 1978 now we've got protests you know islamic protests against his progressive initiatives a groundswell of opinion you've got ayatollah khomeini putting tapes out, rise up, rise up. Yeah, and and I think he was he started to get sick. He yeah, was, he had diagnosed can- with can- yeah. cancer, yeah. Yeah, cancer, depressed, he's taken drugs for it. He had paralysis by analysis of what was going on. For sure. Yeah, couldn't make a decisive, you know, decision to get the army to act. He'd, he'd set up a command structure which was effective but not, not able to be, to work without his say-so. And so basically they didn't do anything. Then there were strikes that swept across Iran. You know, those strikes were largely arranged by foreign powers. So, yeah. you know, that, that, was, that was part of the problem. Yeah. It's part of the problem. You know, at this, at this point in time, you know, it's reasonably agreed upon mm. uh, to some extent that Western powers were playing both sides of the fence at this particular point in time. Yeah, and furthermore, the US and the Soviets were in the height of the Cold War, and Correct. it was happening in the middle mm-hmm. of Iran in the streets. Yeah. And he decided to respond by releasing political prisoners, which <laughs> you have to give him credit that he, he released people. But those people he released became a big problem for him. Yeah. And this, this comes back to this point before. He, he kept forgiving his transgressors. Yeah, you know, all the time, even even that second assassination attempt with the, you know, that group, that team that tried to assassinate him, he pardoned them all. I guess he jumped on a white jet airplane and took off to New York or somewhere. I think he went via Europe first and yeah. then went to the US. And then Ayatollah which, which, Khomeini just rolled on in, rolls back two weeks later and uh, takes over, dissolved the monarchy. Uh, yeah, and that was that was essentially the Iranian Revolution. And then we've got an Islamic Republic of Iran. Boom. Yeah, correct. The, you know, him arriving in the US for cancer treatment was the match that sparked the Iranian hostage mm. crisis. That's, right. That, that was the reason for it. Right, which again, which again had a huge effect on the world's special forces development from there on in and the way they plan. Efficiency yeah, versus so, effectiveness. Mm. Yeah, so that it was the smaller opposition groups so Ayatollah Khomeini co- commanded the largest of the opposition groups, but there were a number of other uh, groups. 
Communist Party sympathisers and a range of other forces opposing the Shah, who were all trying to then leverage for position. And that's when they uh, essentially, a number of these smaller groups leveraged the university students who then invaded the embassy. Mm. And the Ayatollah Khomeini was, you know, in two minds as to whether to support the action or not, because he was uncertain at the time as to what the response was going to be from the US. So he dithered for a bit and that sort of dragged it out for a little bit. And then eventually he went, they have my full support in order to then undermine. He then sidelined all of those groups at a later stage and gave them no authority, no power and, and rem- essentially removed them. Is that right? But uh, yeah, yeah. But eventually, essentially, once it got the blessing of the Ayatollah, that was it. It was a 500 plus day uh, problem. Right. Uh, that, that outlived, you know, a president. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that. I, well, I never really knew it like that. All right, so providing, you know, vision, purpose, the pros for that. He did have a vision, but it was mostly around the westernization of Iran and his own family's importance. And some cons, he wasn't consistent with implementing that vision. He couldn't take people on that journey with him. He didn't get them to buy into it, and he he marginalized the most powerful clerics, which ultimately rumor and innuendo, he wasn't controlling the narrative that was happening below the surface. Other people were controlling it. Yeah. He wasn't able to command the attention of the people he was actually trying to motivate. Mm. After 20 to 30 years of... Of of progress. Yeah, of wealth. um, Ultimately, what it came down to was... And we see this in politics now. We saw it with our own federal election just recently... And the, 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 the voices that you can't survey are the ones who are going to vote you out. You know, you can have all the Nielsen polls you want. And everyone was telling me Labor was going to get in in the last election. And I said, I think that there is a huge amount of people who aren't talking who are going to vote Scott Morrison in. And it happened. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's interesting. And, we'll, you know, and, and it happened when you look at, you know, Trump gaining power in, in his first election. That happened as well. You know, it was, it was the people they weren't counting. And this happened in, in Iran. And that's exactly right. You don't know who, uh, what they're saying under, you know, all of this rumour and innuendo, the narrative being controlled under the surface is a really important narrative and leaders need to think about that. Yeah. How do they, how do they actually hear the narrative? Yeah. If you're not uh, you controlling know, rather, it, someone else is. So leadership sure. style, I gave him four out of 10. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. Oh, cool. He was an authoritarian <laughs> autocrat. He had a dictator's approach to leadership, tried to centralise all the power. He had the Which army. Which was ultimately quite corrupt as well. And that's that's part of the issue about the, the controlling the narrative because it was so corrupt. I don't think – this is the thing, right? I, from what I've read and from what you've probably told me and what you've seen, I don't think he was a corrupt person. Think his systems were. Yeah, his systems were. It was the only thing he knew. It was the only yeah. way he knew. And – he didn't have the right advisors. One thing I've worked out in my life and through doing international relations at uni and spending a lot of time in and out of these Middle Eastern countries and other places is you can't export democracy. It's not, it's not an exportable commodity. You, you're either, you either do it internally and you build the structures internally or it's something different. And what he was trying to do was westernise without the democratic values and the systems he was using were corrupted. It's very complex what he was trying to achieve. It was too reductionist in its theory. It was just too, hey, we're the ruling power, 
and we're going to westernize. No, mate. You know, you've this huge Islamic population who are being driven by their love of Allah, you know, and when, when the Ayatollah starts to permeate information below the surface, you can't counter that with wealth. I actually noticed the fact that uh, whilst there was opposition to him, and, and of course he gave significant rights to women in Iran at the time, we've probably not really even touched on the social changes that he made to the country, and he yeah. actually genuinely delivered some, some progress. I think it's interesting how the Ayatollah was able to bide his time for so long until he didn't need Again, to. Again, mate. Essentially, essentially until he was exiled. And then once he was exiled, he was free to do whatever he wanted. He was going to get you know, shot in the streets if he you know, continued on a path in Iran. But the moment he was out, he was untouchable. He was able to just go, well, now's my time. Again, and the that- playbook. You know, it's, yep. the, it's the playbook of, of the greats. Yep. You've got the Indeed. watches, we've got the time. If you control the narrative... You know, if you look at Che Guevara, that was his problem as he pushed too fast too soon. If he had taken a, a leaf out of the Ayatollah's playbook, mm. anyway, we'll get on to him at some point. You know, he tried to be that benevolent dictator. The problem was that just created more more problems because it became a weakness. It was he was effective for a long period of time, but truthfully, that that centralized control, that dictatorship, yeah, it wasn't enough. Yeah, and and can't be a dictator when you're also timid and scared and dodge decisions, which he did a lot of the time. That's always going to be probably a weakness of a dictator when Mm. you can't always be seen to be strong. He did display being scared about stuff, didn't he? Mm. Like openly. (laughs) So some of the pros for that, the dictator-type style worked initially when there was wealth pouring in. That helped him provide direction, ensured his political position was secure in the in the early years, made him popular initially. Again, the wealth he he did have other world leaders who were supporting supporting him and backed him. America, yeah. Some of the cons that centralization actually amplified, you know, his indecisiveness. <laughs> you know, he didn't use command as intent. He didn't allow people to make decisions within their authority or their lanes. When they asked him, he couldn't make a decision. Things go bad. Yeah, and I think that empathy that we think he had actually made him look unsympathetic and corrupt over time. Yeah, he wasn't. He was just terrible. <laughs> he was a terrible, terrible leader. <laughs> he he was what wasn't he? He was absolutely terrible. It reminds me of the term: your indecision becomes your decision. And I, I do think that if if he had been a hard man, but fair, the world would be a yeah. different place now. You wouldn't have had the Iraq Iran war. You wouldn't have had this uprising. But all of the indecisions that he ever made actually were butterfly effects for what happened around the world in different places. His indecision became a lot of the world's decisions. <laughs> and I mean, just talking about the Iran-Iraq war, that is two massive armies back then fighting. People probably think it was just two little countries. No, that's two massive armies. Uh, you know, on the back of a huge modernisation that the Shah had undertaken, yeah, and it was over the oh, well. I mean, it was complex, but a large part of that was around the boundary line for oil. Following the World War Two, they'd they'd marked the boundary as the low water mark on the I think the Iranian side, whereas you know around the rest of the world it was always the deep channel marker. But what it meant was that a whole bunch of oil reserves were on the were on the Iraqi side. Yeah. And they just weren't getting the royalties from, from the oil fields. Yeah. And so there was a s- substantial amount of that. 
Isn't it interesting? I mean, you know, the, the Iraqis were funded by the US in that war in some ways. Bunkers built by the British? Yeah. Yep. Anyway, we'll get onto that later. Mm. Um, enduring legacy, yeah, four out of ten. There's there's no adoration for the Shah anymore within Iran. Well, at the time of writing this, you never know what what happens. Um, as the Islamic Republic has effectively propagandized the revolution by casting the Shah as the enemy of the people, so they controlled the narrative. But Iranian expats, you know, and intellectuals and middle class. You know, they see the Shah's reign as a time of peace and political stability. Because if you imagine everything, everything has been quite difficult since the Ayatollah. That modernization is still revered in in yeah. people outside of Iran who are Iranians. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was reviewing a whole a whole range of let's let's call them modern mm. documentaries and interviews and those sorts of things. And when you go through the commentary, it's actually interesting to you know, to listen to the messaging and listen to what was being said and then read the commentary. And it was really evident that there's a lot of residual support, certainly outside of Iran, for that modernization. I wonder if that is, you know, adoration for a for a different time rather than his actual prowess and success and those sorts of things. And also, if you look at, you know, that, that modernization that's looked at favorably, you need to compare that then to the conservative and, and rural Iranians who see the Shah as just a foreign puppet and the fact that they didn't get anything and looking to destroy Persia. Yeah. Remember? Because... Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, they see it as Persia. And yeah, so the, the idea, the Shah's idea of westernising and modernising Iran, you know, both economically and socially, still a political force in Iran and embodied by the, the reformist party. Mm-mm. Interesting. Yeah, what do you think? Do you think he was effective? I think at periods, periods mm. in his life, he was. Mm. He was successful to a point, but I think that was when it was easy and money flowed and could fix problems. And he could, you know, he went on a modern, massive modernization program. He was commissioning new armored vehicles through the British, like his own tanks. The country was so wealthy. He was able to build faster than the world could find, you know, essentially tradies and engineers and architects and those sorts of things. And then in fact, his, his reform program got so big, it was even despite all of his money, he was actually spending it faster than he could make money through, you know, inflated oil prices. Yeah. I just think that there wasn't a coordinated plan. Yes, sure. Some of his ideas were good. He executed some of them well, but not great. And ultimately nothing stuck. You know, I think about the way that he led and and without having that um, political infrastructure below him. I mean, if you look at the Ayatollah and possibly, yeah. you know, possibly the years that the Ayatollah had the greatest influence was when you had um, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad as the president. Ahmadinejad. Yeah, yeah, as the president. And so yeah. he was able to take a lot of the flack, which means that Ayatollah doesn't. And if you think about the Shah, if the Shah had that, that political infrastructure below him where there was a mm. president taking the flak, then he wouldn't have been seen to be so weak and and not make decisions. Well, they had prime minister had prime ministers. But it just was watered period. down yeah, people. Yeah, for sure. You know, it wasn't I mean it's not it's not like Queen Elizabeth doesn't have an active role in the parliament where she can mm. make you know, but he had an active he was the decision maker and he didn't. 
We should do Ahmed Dinajad because he's fascinating. Yeah, so I think you're right. You know, the downfall of the Shah, the ushering in of the Islamic Republic, saw all the reforms pretty much reversed. Conservative Islamic social laws introduced. Yeah, it's just incredible. If you look at photos of Iran in the 60s, same as the photos of, of Afghanistan in the 50s and 60s, you can, you can just see how that progress was stalled and then reversed. And it's not necessarily by Islam, it's by bad management. Because there's plenty yeah. of Islamic countries that, I mean, look at UAE, Saudi, you know, they are moving forwards with reforms, technological, and well, even with everything that's been in the news about Saudi, you know, they're still looking at doing social reforms. They're, they're, they're trying. But if you look at Iran, it's just not. How it ended for him, zero out of ten. Indecisive, unpopular, exile, watched as a country had reigned over since 1941, reversed all of his economic and social reforms. I think he died of cancer in 1980. Yep. Yeah, 1980, but in Egypt. Right. So he wasn't in the, or he was in the US for a while, wasn't he? He was, but he had to leave. Yeah. Mm. Overall, 18 out of 50. That's the lowest yeah. we've scored anyone. And that's, that's the indecisiveness just permeating the whole way through his personality and into his leadership style. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's fascinating to see someone in that position. And then have that amount of wealth at his disposal, yeah. and 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 to be fair, like he initiated the the oil crisis of the seventies, mm. uh, and the oil crisis literally was him writing how he explained it as the exploitation mm. of Iran to build the wealth of Western nations. They gave him a pretty shitty deal. They got rich off it, and when he tried to write that wrong, mm. it sparked off the oil crisis. And for this period of time. You know, they were wealthy beyond beyond all count. But then he wasn't able to capitalise on that, you know, showed a lot of pride, mm. like personal pride. He, you know, hubristic. He was mm. hubristic in nature and, and thought he was the king of kings, of course. Well, I'm royalty and I'm rich and, and you do get that feeling. You've got to think that the lesson for leaders here really is around controlling the narratives, listening to people's thoughts about issues, but mm. then making firm, solid decisions and sticking to it if it's right. His weakness building, was his downfall. Build, and building his supporter base and, and having trust there. You can't be everything to all people. Mm. You have to make decisions based on your vision. Which is partly Provide why direction. a democracy should work because the greatest weight of the people should be the ones that empower you to make your decisions. Mm. And so if you think about it in that context... As a Shah, he wasn't able to create sort of any traction with the overwhelming popular majority for any decision. So he would go with whoever was the loudest in his mind. And when when I look at a country like the UAE, for instance, where it's a very similar construct, that they are able to gain the popular opinion because they have votes on things. They get yeah. elders in. You know, they get the elders in a room together and they ask their opinion and they and they, they do change management. Yeah. And he didn't change management at all. He just changed, just changed stuff and then changed it back and then changed it to something else depending on who was asking him to do something at the time. And ultimately what it did is it created this huge groundswell of disparate groups to all have one purpose and that was you gone, buddy. And do you know what else is missing? The difference between some of these other leaders 
you know, that we've spoken about. Oh, he wasn't able to commun- He wasn't able to stand up and communicate. Well, he wasn't there either. He was removed from the people. You compare that to Winston Churchill, mm. Ataturk. Mm. Well, even Hitler, like mm. even Hitler was out and about, not nowhere near as much as Ataturk and Winston Churchill. Mm. So accessible. Yeah, he was accessible. I would argue that the Shah just was not. Mm. Yeah, that's a good. That's a uh, good observation. That's it, mate. That's pretty much it. Wow. Yeah, that was an hour. That went quick. That's incredible, isn't it? It's it's an interesting story about purpose and direction and definition of done or end state. Yeah. You know, and decision making. You know, having having that vision and being able to to follow through. And I think that they're probably the key lessons to take away from this because I think we've all met leaders who are uh, a smaller version of that or display characteristics of, of this particular leader. And, yeah, you know, at, at times, you know, whether that's because they lack experience or lack confidence, it doesn't end well if you can't follow through on your, on your purpose or you, you can't, you know, make decisions. Yeah, I'm going to give you an interesting one for next week. Jimmy Carter. I just spoke about Jimmy Carter. Did you? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Jimmy Carter and his advice to uh, his ambiguous yeah, advice yeah. to uh, the Shah. Yeah. Mm. Nuts. We're going to do some Americans. Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan. So that's some good some good weeks coming up. We're getting towards Otto Skizini, mate. I know you're excited. At the end of these 20 episodes, I think we'll then do some famous special forces battles. Thanks for joining me on the Warrior You podcast again this week. Let's get back into doing some leadership stuff for some companies. Catch you later. Thanks for listening to the Warrior U podcast. Did you know that our parent company, Hindsight, offers leadership and resilience training as well as workshops? If you would like to know more, please head to www.hindsightleadership.com. If you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, there's a donation tab at the bottom of the main podcast page. to keep the show on the road. If you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, you can find all the information through the podcast website page. Just click on the training tab. All this information and more can be found at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.